Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Today, we are going to continue our series that we're in called Friends, Brothers, and Others, in which we're really getting through quite a bit of the rest of the New Testament. Um, And then the final three weeks, today and the next two weeks of the series, we'll finish it up, and we will talk really about books of the Bible written by some of the best friends of Jesus, the best of the best, the closest of the closest friends of Jesus. And today, we're going to be looking at uh, the writings of Peter who is probably, I mean, John is the next two weeks after that. Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, the inner three of the 12 apostles, um, has a lot of information to give us about from Jesus, I believe. And I'll just give you a heads up. Today's going to be a little bit heavy, uh, maybe a bit challenging at times, but I hope that we can uh, leave today encouraged overall, even through the challenge, even though it's a little bit heavy of a topic possibly, that we can be encouraged by Peter today as he talks about suffering. But it's a specific suffering that we're going to talk about today. So when you read 1 Peter, what we're not going to talk about today is why tragedy happens to people. We're not going to talk about generally why bad things happen to good people or why we, you know, endure things like that. That's not really the message that Peter gives us when it comes to suffering. It's a specific suffering. The type of suffering that Peter talks about that we'll discuss today is when we suffer because of our faith. Now, you could generalize some of what Peter says about suffering for your faith into more broadly why we suffer, but specifically, that's what he's talking about. So that's what we're going to cover today. So again, a bit heavy, a bit much, but I think we'll be encouraged because maybe you've been in some of the scenarios that we'll outline today when it comes to your faith. Maybe your faith has been made more difficult because of outside influences or opposition. And so hopefully today will be helpful and insightful to you. So First Peter, it seems to be, was written at an interesting time. We would assume uh, early, probably mid-60s AD, when Emperor Nero was in charge of the Roman Empire. Now, we assume that a lot because of what Peter says. He doesn't name Nero. He doesn't talk about any, any specific suffering of the people to whom he's writing. But the context would let us know it's probably during this time in the mid-60s when Christianity is really coming under heavy attack. So the people are still trying to figure out who they are, what Christianity is, what we really believe about Jesus. So they're wrestling with all of these big questions, but they're dealing with opposition, first of all, from the same people that oppose Jesus. A lot of the Jewish leaders uh, and sort of the system opposed, even martyred, Christians. But we also see in the middle of the first century and for the next 200 years after that, that the Roman government also persecuted Christians. Now, the way this actually started is in 64 AD when Nero was in charge. He was starting to kind of go a little crazy. He was starting to get really paranoid. He'd already killed his mom and one of his half-brothers. I mean, he's just a crazy dude. So in 64 AD, there's this huge fire that breaks out in Rome and destroys a large segment of the Roman Empire. And... There's a lot of debate 
when you look at the, how it's described, did Nero actually help to start the fire for a political purpose? Was he indifferent even if he didn't start the fire? But what we do know from history is that he blamed the fire on the Christians. He was looking for some kind of scapegoat for some social reason, political reason, and he blamed the Christians for this fire. And that set off really 200 years of persecuting of Christians in the Roman Empire. So, of course, you know, they were fed to lions. They were used in the Colosseum for, for blood sport. Um, I mean, they're crucified. There's all sorts of records about how Christians in the first couple centuries were persecuted. We'll discuss some of them later on. Uh, today. And so that's really the context in which Peter talks about, again, not just generalized suffering. Not everyone in the Roman Empire is suffering equally, right? P- the Christians are suffering because of their faith. They're suffering more than what would be normal for a human who suffers all kinds of things, randomly it would seem, because of their faith. And while our world looks a bit different than that world, we, we don't really, especially in the West where we live, we don't see a lot of that. Now, in other parts of the world, there is persecution. Like, you would not even believe that they still do. I mean, people are literally shot and killed for their faith. They're lined up in rows and just, I mean, mowed down. I mean, it it happens. They're hunted down. They have to live in hiding. They have to meet in secret churches all over the world. So it's, it's not the same here, but we'll talk about how it looks for us as we try to follow Jesus and as we at some time in some way on some level may suffer because of it. So here's the outline we're going to look at today. Let me give, tell you where we're going to go. We're going to look at four aspects of suffering for our faith. We're going to look at the reality of suffering for your faith, the reason for suffering for your faith, some responses to suffering for your faith, and then the result of that. Okay? The reality, the reason, the response, and the result. So let's start out with this, the reality of suffering for your faith. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, here's what Peter says about this topic. He says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. Peter says, don't be surprised when you face suffering for your faith. And here, let me just make a statement right out the gate that's going to be really maybe heavy. If you are going to live a long-term and genuine faith, you will at some point have to prepare for the reality of some type of suffering. Let me say that again. If you're going to live a long-term and genuine faith, okay, not just if, I, if there's an option on this survey online, I'm a Christian because I live in America, If you want to live a long-term, genuine faith, you're going to need to be prepared for some type of suffering to come. Now, you may not be thrown to the lions like in the first century. You may not be, you know, burned at the stake, okay? Most of our suffering in the West is more cultural currency type of suffering at this point. That's where we're going to focus on because that's really, I think, the majority of the suffering that we face in, in the West. It's mainly relational, emotional, psychological, that sort of thing, but it's still real, It's still difficult, and it has to be dealt with, and Peter says it must be expected. He says, don't be surprised. So you may have noticed this in your life. Maybe you've lost a close personal relationship because of your faith. That gap was just too much for that person to still be your BFF, and so they they cut you off because of your faith. Maybe you feel that you've missed out on some sort of professional opportunity because you're a person of faith. 
We would put that in the suffering category, even though it's not, again, it's not the same maybe as the first century or people in other parts of the world, but this is where we live, okay? So we're going to apply it to where we live. Maybe you have noticed you've been ostracized or pushed to the margins in a lot of your life because you live genuine, a genuine life of faith. Maybe you feel that you don't quite belong because of your faith. Maybe you're questioning everything because you have suffered for your faith. Maybe, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, you feel like, I can't do this anymore. I'm really tired. But maybe you weren't expecting it. And Peter says, don't be surprised. Jesus says the same thing to us in John 15. Let's look at what Jesus says to his disciples and then as well to us. John 15, verse 18. Jesus says, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. If the world would love you as one of its own, the world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. So Jesus gives a very strict warning, a stern warning here, just like Peter does later on. He says, they hate me, they're going to hate you. They come against me, they're going to come against you. They won't listen to me, they won't listen to you. They rejected me, they'll reject you. Jesus says this is part of the deal. When you check that box, and you, the terms and agreements to your faith, the fine print, this is in there. And it's actually not fine print. It's at the very top in bold letters. Jesus makes it very clear. Peter says, don't be surprised. We're not, he's not trying to do a bait and switch here. Okay? And many times I fear we're not prepared for suffering. And if suffering gets worse, we won't be prepared in the West because we haven't looked at the bold stuff at the top that's telling us, hey, this is part of it. Okay? So we have to be prepared and ready for the reality of that. And then Jesus says it one more thing, and then we'll move on. He says it in this way as well in Luke 14. In Luke 14, 25 through 28, Jesus says this. It says, A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must by comparison hate everyone else, your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciples. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Here's the key we're going to focus on for a second. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? How far will you go to follow Jesus? It's the question. How much abuse will you take for your faith and stick with it? How much ridicule are you willing to endure and still stick with it? How much loss, and again, maybe it's just emotional, maybe it's just uh, relational, but it still matters, it still means something. How much of that are you willing to endure to follow Jesus? Because Peter and Jesus say that suffering for our faith is a reality, we must count the cost. How far will I go and still follow Jesus? Because here's the deal, following Jesus is great. It is, but it's not easy. And I'll just, spoiler alert, it's not designed to be. At the beginning, it says a large crowd was following Jesus. I bet you after he said this, the crowd got a lot smaller. When we really realize what he's saying here, what, it, what the cost is, man, we really get down to the real followers, and that's by design. So following Jesus is rewarding, but Peter says it's going to in some way at some time include loss. 
Following Jesus is amazing, but it's risky. It is. So we, the first key to living a successful, long-term, genuine life of faith is to be aware of the reality of suffering in a life of faith at some time and in some way. So the second thing that we want to see, now that we've kind of got through that, the fun part, no, it doesn't get more fun, I'm just, I'm just telling you. Let's look at the reason for suffering because of our faith. What's the reason? We know it's going to happen. Peter says, don't be surprised. Jesus warns us over and over again. So what's the reason here? Peter gives us an answer to this too. 1 Peter 5, 8, 9, he says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. Because you are a person of faith, you have a great enemy. And that enemy is Satan, right? That's what Peter says, the devil. So that we're going to focus on who that is for just a second. Let me, this might seem obvious, but I have to say it. Satan is real, okay? Just like we believe in a positive supernatural force in the universe that is God, that is for us, there is an opposing evil supernatural force at work in the universe, and that's Satan. He's your cosmic enemy. Now, just because they're both supernatural, they're above our nature, doesn't mean they're equal. Satan is a created being from God, so he's not all-powerful, but he certainly has power. He certainly has influence. I mean, you want to look around at the world. Why is that happening? Because our great enemy is working overtime, and he's doing a great job at what he does. He's very good at what he does, and so he causes things to happen uh, that can cause suffering for our faith, and his goal ultimately is your destruction. That's it. That's the goal. That's a win for him. If he can destroy your faith, destroy your life, destroy your relationships, destroy your hope, all that, that's his goal. The key here is to remember Satan is your great enemy. Your unbelieving spouse is not your enemy. Okay? Your hostile boss or coworker is not your enemy. Your antagonistic, atheistic neighbor is not your enemy. Anti-faith politicians or leaders in the culture are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. Ephesians 6, Paul says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and rulers in spiritual places. So it's easy for us, and this is a tactic that Satan will use. He will use anyone and anything to get your attention directed off of him as your enemy. He wants to divide and conquer. So he wants you to get focused on this person as my enemy, no, they're not. They're not. They, they may be opposing you, but they're not really at the core your enemy. Don't misalign your attention to remem by remembering who your enemy is. Satan will try to discourage you, beat you down, wear you out, and destroy your faith and your very life. That's the goal. That's the idea. So we want to be aware of this reality that when we're suffering from other things, other people, from other directions, to remember the reason is not that person, per se, it's Satan at work in the world. Let me give you a secondary reason very quickly that might surprise you, but I'll try to explain. A secondary reason, again, that Peter gives us in 1 Peter for suffering for our faith. Let's go back to chapter 1, 1 Peter 1, 6, and 7. We'll come back to this at the end, but let's look at it here in a different way. Peter writes, So be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. 
these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. The secondary reason I think we see here from Peter for suffering for our faith is because God allows it. Gasp, <gasps> right? Maybe that's a hard one to swallow, but look at this again. He says, you must endure many trials to test your faith. Suffering for your faith is the ultimate test to prove the worth of your faith. And you might ask, well, why would God do that? Think of God as, your, as the great teacher. A teacher's job is to test the students. If, if my kids' teachers never gave them tests, my kids would love them, but I would not because that's a benchmark for what you're learning, how you're progressing, how you're growing. The teacher gives those. They allow those. That's part of the plan. It's built in. So God allows certain things to happen, and I mean, it, it is on a general level as well, but also when it comes to testing of your faith or suffering for your faith, God could take those things away, couldn't he? he has, if he's really all-powerful, he could just say, nope, no problems for my people anymore, no issues, no roadblocks, no bumps, no nothing, it's just going to be smooth sailing. God could do that, but he allows these things to happen. Peter says to test the genuineness of our faith. You can also think of your life as like a 100-meter hurdle race. Think about that. The 100-meter hurdles, the hurdles are a design in the race, are they not? It's part of the race. So when we look at the Olympics and we see the 100-meter hurdles, we don't say, you know what, I'm going to not believe in the creator of that, of that sport because there's hurdles in the way of those poor runners. We don't do that. We don't curse, oh, curse you, inventor of hurdles! Those runners have to jump over things. No, it's part of it. It's built in. It's not a bug. It's not a, it's not a bug. It's a feature, right? It's part of it. Life is the same way. It's built in. So it's part of that process. And I think that's when we go back to James, who we talked about last week. I think that's why he says, I'll show you my faith by my works. I think these, these ideas kind of go hand in hand in that way. Because think about it. How strong is my faith if it never goes to the gym? If it's never tested, stretched, pressed, how, how do I know if it's strong? I can't, except for the test that God allows to happen. How durable is my faith if I never have to jump over any hurdles or obstacles? I, I ne I'll never know if I don't face those things that God does seem to allow. How am I going to learn and grow and progress in my faith without it being tested? I've got to have a test to pass a test, and I'm not saying that I like this, I'm not saying that I'm looking for the next hurdle for my faith. I'm not, that's, I'm not enjoying this part of it. I'm just saying it's a reality. It's a reason for testing and suffering in our faith. And I, I know that God allows it for a reason. And he doesn't always tell me what those reasons are. He doesn't clue me in on the behind the scenes. I don't get to read the footnote at the bottom. I just see the asterisk there, and I'm like, okay, what's the point? What's the point? It's to test my faith, and then there are other things along the way with that. But I have to know that my job is to not question everything that God does or allows, but just when that hurdle comes, my job is to, as best I can, to jump over that hurdle. My job is to not accuse, you're a naughty teacher because you gave me a test. Now, the point of it is to then take the test and hopefully, through a strong faith, pass 
the test. So a couple of reasons for faith. First, you do have a great enemy, Satan, who comes after you to try to knock you down and destroy you. And then on the back end of that, God allows even Satan to do certain things. We know that from Scripture. I won't get into that. I don't have time. The Chiefs kick off in a while. Okay, don't look at your watch. But that's just how it is, okay? Satan comes after you, and God just allows tests to come for, eventually for our good, for, to strengthen us and to make us stronger, okay? So here's the third thing. So we have the reality of suffering and then the reasons for suffering. Now let's look at a, a few responses of suffering for your faith. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17 lists what we're going to look at as three negative, unhelpful responses to faith. So let's look at it, then we'll examine it for a couple minutes. Peter writes, Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they'll be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants, see there it is again, than to suffer for doing wrong. In this section here, I think there are three possible negative, unhelpful responses that are very natural for us when it comes to suffering for our faith, but they're not helpful, okay? The first one he talks about here is fear. He says in verse 14, don't worry or be afraid. So when we think about suffering or when we are enduring suffering for our faith, fear plays a big part of our response to that. And fear is real. And think about this. Naturally, in, in many ways, fear is good. It's a defense mechanism. If I'm walking through the woods and I come upon a copperhead, fear is going to tell me, don't go play with that. That's good. Fear is helpful in that way. However, unchecked fear can become irrational fear really quickly. If me seeing a snake in the woods then causes me to never want to leave my house again, that's irrational fear. That is, not, that is unhelpful. So I think what Peter is saying here, he's not saying don't feel anything. He's not saying fear is bad, right? He's saying don't allow fear to keep you from living a life of faith. To put, you have to push past those things. Let me give you a few, a few examples. Maybe you've struggled in your, maybe you're a people pleaser, like me, okay? And maybe one of the fears with your faith is, I'm afraid of my beliefs offending someone or angering someone. Now, that's legitimate. So again, it's like the snake in the woods. We don't want to be offensive for the sake of being offensive. On the other hand, Jesus says the gospel is offensive. The truth is offensive. And so if I'm going to live a genuine life of faith grounded in the truth of God's word, it will at some point to some people, rub them the wrong way. It will turn them off. Now, it's not me, you know, bullhorning on the street corner with picketing signs all the time, okay, which we'll get to in a minute, that, but I can't be afraid of how they respond to just truth, okay? So I got to push past that fear to live a life of faith. Maybe you fear rejection. I don't, I, you know, I really want to keep them as a friend. We've been friends for a long time, but now my, my life has changed and my thoughts have changed, my desires have changed, and we just don't click anymore, and they're starting to ask some questions and act weird. Fear of rejection, it's real. We have to deal with it, but in the end, if we're going to live a genuine life of faith, we have to push past that and continue to keep living a life of faith. Maybe you, have, maybe you suffer from FOMO. You know what that is? Fear of missing out. Maybe you think about, man, I used to have way more fun back before I was a Christian. No, you didn't. Wrong. Living a life of faith is living your best life. 
you're giving up temporary, immature pleasures that in the end cause so much more pain and destruction than now I'm living with wisdom. I'm thinking about what I'm doing. I'm thinking about how it affects me long term, how it affects other people besides me. That's what living a life of faith can do. It's really a maturity thing. So don't, don't live in FOMO, right? Don't live in fear of missing out, but living your best life is living a life of faith. One last one. Maybe you think, you know, I'm, I'm afraid every day that I'm going to mess up. I'm trying to do this thing, but I'm just afraid that I'm going to cave. I'm going to crumble. I'm going to just let everybody down. You know what? Faith doesn't make you perfect. Faith doesn't cure you of sin, right? It forgives you of sin, but you're still a sinful, frail, fallen person. So you can't be afraid, well, I'm going to, now, now you can go too far, right? We all know that. I'm, I, I don't have time to do this whole theology of this uh, topic today, although I'm trying really hard, right? But living in this constant fear of letting everybody down, if I do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing, we have to kind of push past that and just say, I'm trying, trying to daily live a genuine life of faith, as imperfect as I am. Faith is not the absence of fear. Fear is real. We have to deal with it. And fear is not the absence of faith. So just because you struggle or wrestle or deal with fear doesn't mean you're not a person of faith. It doesn't mean your faith's not genuine. But like Peter says, don't let your fear keep you from living a genuine life of faith. The second negative unhelpful response here is anger. It's really in verse 16. He says, keep your conscience clear, right? Your life of faith is automatically countercultural automatically so we don't have to prove anything by being angry all the time and really angry christians are confusing christians to me like you're so angry but the gospel means good news i'm not sensing that vibe from this person over here who's always yelling and screaming and picketing and whatever like and it's it's fine to stand for things and it's fine to have positions we should but again Anger is not going to solve anything. It's not helpful. It's not, it's not conducive to anything positive happening. So it's easy to get angry at repeated verbal abuse from other people. That's a natural reaction that many of us would have. It's easy to get angry when people constantly drag your faith through the mud. It's easy to get angry when people think less of you because you're a Christian. It's easy to get angry at cultural leaders and political leaders and celebrities who normalize and celebrate the decay of our society. I struggle with that one, right? It's easy to, oh boy, you know what's coming for you. Like, it's, that's, my, that's my gut, you know? But that's not helpful. Anger is not helpful, and it's not the way of Jesus. When Jesus suffered, for his faith, really in himself, you know, he was the first person that believed, he was the first person that believed in himself, and he's the only person I would say it's okay to believe in yourself in that, in that way, okay? When he was suffering, he didn't curse the Jewish leaders who set him up. He didn't curse the Roman officials who put him on trial and crucified him. He didn't, he didn't curse the soldiers that nailed his hands and feet to a cross. Instead, some of his final words were on the cross, Father, forgive them right? That's not anger. Anger is understandable. It's a tempting response, but it's not helpful. So let's do all that we can to avoid that response to suffering. Here's the third response here in, in this section here, and that is despair. And maybe you're there. Maybe you're really close. You're teetering on the edge. You say, I've suffered a lot. I've suffered for a long time. I've sacrificed a lot for my faith, and I quit. 
Or maybe you say, look at how bad things are. Things will never get any better. It'll never improve. So woe is me, hands in the air. Uh, It's over. It's over. Doom and gloom. Despair. You may be tired. You may be discouraged. You may have serious wounds and scars because of your faith, but despair is not a winning strategy. It's in a different context, but I've heard this phrase, and I think I've used it before, but it, it, it works here as well. You may lose a battle, but you can never win a surrender. Okay? You may lose a battle, but you can never win a surrender. There's been no army in the history of ever that have, that have won by running away. Okay? Now, there is strategic retreat to then come back and, fa- and fight another day, but a strategy of always running, 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 running from suffering or to escape suffering doesn't work. Despair is not a winning strategy. Peter, or Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10 about despair. So if you're in despair, listen to this. He says, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. So if you are in despair right now, you might need to memorize those three verses. Write them down, tape them on every wall, to your mirror in the morning, on your fridge, you like your windshield so when you're driving in the morning. No, don't do, maybe don't do that. If you're tempted to fall into despair, meditate on that. We're not crushed, we're not abandoned, we're not destroyed, we're not driven to despair. So if these responses aren't the ones that Peter says are helpful, then what is? And he says simply, the proper response to suffering for your faith is hope. Not fear, not anger, not despair, but hope. He says, give people a reason for the hope that is within you. Don't give them your list of things that you're afraid about. Don't give them things that you're angry over. Don't tell them, oh, doom and gloom, it's despair. You should join me in my despair party. It's going to be a lot of fun. No, he says, give them a reason for the hope that is within you. Live in hope because you have hope. To give this illustration quickly, there were two second century uh, church leaders who were both martyred for their faith. And as you look at their last recorded words, you will see hope. You won't see fear, anger, or despair in the face of certain death. Like they're already tied to the stake. They've already been tortured, and they still live in hope. The first is Justin Martyr, a second-century theologian. Here's what he says. His last words recorded are this. No one in his right mind gives up piety for impiety. This is our desire, to be tortured for our Lord Jesus Christ, and so to be saved. For that will give us salvation and firm confidence at the more terrible universal tribunal of our Lord and Savior. And then he's tortured and beheaded. He knows this is coming, and he says, that's my desire is what's about to happen. There's no fear, there's no anger, there's no despair, there's only hope. And then Polycarp, who's another second century, he's an early bishop, um, he refused to burn incense to the Roman emperor. And here's some of his final words, or next to last, because we'll get to his final words in just a second. On, On the day of his death, he's 86 years old, and so he says, 80 and 6 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Then he is tied to a stake and burned alive, but won't die. So they have to stab him. 
after they stab him, as he's breathing his final breath, here are his actual final words. He says, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. These men, when facing suffering like I don't think any of us can probably imagine, weren't afraid, weren't angry, weren't in despair. They still had hope. So whatever battles you're fighting, fight them in hope. Whatever suffering you're enduring, endure them with hope. Whatever hurdles you have to cross, cross them in hope, by hope. That's the only way we can do this thing. May you have hope. Last thing as we close is the result of suffering for your faith. 1 Peter 4.14, if you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed. For the glorious Spirit of God rests upon you. This echoes the words of Jesus in the Beatitudes. I know that we're studying this in our small group, so I won't say a lot on this. But Jesus says the same thing. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. Peter echoes those exact words. So when you pray for God to bless you, be careful, right? Peter says you're blessed because you're persecuted. Jesus says you're blessed when you're persecuted. So a little tongue-in-cheek, but even if we are suffering, God will bless us as we are faithful. He says he gives us his, the Spirit of God rests on you in your suffering. Even as you suffer, God promises his Spirit to you so you can endure. You can endure. Let's, let's move along here. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, he lists a couple other things. He says this, So be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than your gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. There's several things here that we'll look at really quickly. He says, through your suffering, there is joy. Joy. Hebrews 12, 2, it says that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. So on the other side, I know it's hard to see this. That's why hope is so important, because on the other side of suffering, whatever that looks like, joy is there. Hope gets you through, right, the suffering, and on the other side, joy is there. That's what he says. It's a, it's a result of suffering for your faith. And then he says we're purified through this. How's your faith purified? How are you purified? The same way that gold is. You got to have some heat applied if you want to be purified. And that rhymed. Okay. You got to have heat applied if you want to be purified. Even through suffering, you come out better in the end. And I think Peter would argue maybe only through suffering can you come out better in the end than you are right now? I know it seems odd, it seems counterintuitive, it seems harsh and almost evil of God, but again, I think almost only through suffering can we become out better in the end. And then he says at the end of in verse 7, he says, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor. Now, who is that from? It seems to me that would be from, from Jesus. Right? So, you can... You can quit, you can give in to despair and fear, you can quit on your faith, and maybe you'll get a pat on the back, you'll get some friends back, right? You'll get some clout back. Or we can push past all these other responses that aren't helpful, and then one day, Jesus will literally pat you on the back. Praise, glory, and honor. Like, I'm seeing that coming from Jesus, right? When he says, well done, good and faithful servant, I mean, I'm living for that. So whatever suffering it takes me on this side to get to there, That's what I'm living for. There's no comparison to that reality. 
Here's the last one, and then we'll, we'll close. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Uh, another, a couple, uh, I think a, maybe the most important result of our suffering is this. This salvation was something even the prophets, the salvation from Jesus, he's saying, was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterward. They were told, catch this, that their messages were not for themselves but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is also wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. Here's the biggest result of suffering for your faith. Suffering may happen to you, but it doesn't have to be about you. That's, I think, the biggest result of suffering for your faith. Your love in the face of hatred is not for you. It's for others to see. Your perseverance past fear and anger and despair is not so much for you, but again, Peter says it's to give others hope. You have a reason now. You can share that with them why you have hope as you persevere. Your battle of spirit against spiritual opposition is not for you. It's for others. The result of facing suffering, persecution, ridicule, pain, loss is to give others a reason for hope. You can inspire others in their faith by your faith even through suffering. Someone who's seeing you from afar, maybe someone you'll never meet has heard your story second, third hand. They're like, whoa, I've been going through that same thing. I can endure that, right? Or someone that sees you struggle day after day in your faith and they see that you're ostracized, see that you're kind of put aside, that you're laughed at and ridiculed, that can encourage them in their faith. It can inspire faith in others. And ultimately, that can instill faith in others. Hey, there is something beyond this is what we're showing by our faith. There's hope beyond this kind of everyday, blah. I can endure all these things not because I'm so great or powerful or strong, because I have something in someone inside of me to help me live this way I otherwise could not. It instills and inspires faith in others. So suffering is a reality. We hate it, but stay focused. Stay the course, keep the faith, and may your life of faith, your genuine long-term life of faith, may it be a beacon of light and hope all those around you. Let's pray. God, as we live lives of faith, we know we will face opposition. Peter says, don't be surprised. Jesus warns us it will come. We will face opposition. We will face ridicule, maybe even danger. We'll face all sorts of obstacles in our life of faith. It's just a reality. So help us to see the reality of that. To not be caught off guard, to not be surprised by it, but help us to see that that is part of our journey. But help us to also see the spiritual nature of it, to not get our eyes focused on the here and now so much, to not point our anger toward this person or that group or this organization, but help us to see that, no, Satan is at work. There's a more powerful supernatural force at work, which is where our energy should be pointed. Help us to see with spiritual eyes and help us to respond well, even in the face of suffering for our faith, not in fear, not in anger, not in despair, but in hope. Help us to give people a reason for the hope that is within us by living it out, even in the face of suffering. Help us through the power of the Holy Spirit to persevere, 
to push through, to live genuine long-term lives of faith, not just for our benefit, but for the benefit of others around us that need to have that hope instilled in them, that need to have an extra dose of faith given to them, that need to find faith, period. Help us to be the kind of people who can live the kind of life as imperfect as we are through the power of the Spirit to instill and inspire faith in others as the whole point of suffering for our faith. So I pray that you would strengthen us even this week as we go out into the world and face this opposition. Give us patience and grace and peace and love and joy and hope as we live genuine, long-term, daily lives of faith. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.